This is the Critical Race. The Olympic Games, a tradition founded by the ancient Greeks in 776 BC, nearly three millennium ago. The Greeks gave us track and field, wrestling and gymnastics. It follows a predictable and recurring cycle, yet today we take them for granted. Like high school sports, we expect it. For many, athletics defines the best portion of the four years we spent in that brick prison called a public school. Four years come and go in a vapor, and when we are grown, we wish we could live those four years again. Just four more years. That is the chanting of our childlike hearts. Four more years. The Greeks called this cycle an Olympiad. Each cycle, the city-states gathered for peace and the enjoyment of mesmerizing performances. In America, we have this impression that the games have never ceased. School and sports, we assume they will always be there. Like the NBA or the NFL, the show must go on. Or Little League, we suppose there will always be a next year for Junior. Baseball, it is a sacred pastime in America. Sitting at a game with your friend or father or watching the finals as a child, it changes you. The teams and the exploits of your personal heroes forever fused into your consciousness. Remember those posters in your bedroom? Remember the first autograph? The Olympics were held in honor of the gods, and K-12 sports are held in honor of the precious children. At minute now, we all tried to be like the gods. When no one was watching, we flexed in the mirror. We jumped as high as we could, and we stuck out our tongue. That first home run, layup, touchdown, we remember it in vivid detail. We remember it like our baptism, like our bar mitzvah, our confirmation, sports, it is our religion. Like the rising and the setting of the sun, we expect the games to commence and the fans to gather. But as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end. In the year 391, the Olympic Games suddenly disappeared. I imagine the Greek gods were not pleased that we humans ended their sacrifices. For 1,500 years, the oblations of competition and glory were halted suddenly. And if a day is like a thousand years to the gods, how daring we were to deprive them of even one and a half days. Furthermore, if we Americans miss one game or half a game, then how could we mere mortals survive? Yeah, today we are bouncing off of a podcast, Art of Sport, with Trevor Loudon. Uh, that led to a second episode in this series called The Crocodile. We talk about the culture. We talk about the English culture right before the invasion of Poland. We talk about 
sports. We connect these concepts of sports with national pride and survival. And it's, let's just be real, um, who doesn't love sports? Even if you don't play sports, you watch sports. If you don't watch or play, you're most likely involved in karate, taekwondo, um, wrestling. If you don't like to walk around the neighborhood, then maybe you need to get out more. But this is a very, very critical time in our history. And so today I have the pleasure and privilege of sitting with former Attorney General Curtis Hill downtown Elkhart in his office. And I just want to say thanks, Curtis, for allowing me this slot today. Um, how was your lunch? Lunch was good, Jason. And thank you for coming in and being accommodating to my schedule. Lunch was uh, great. I had a, a business meeting with a few fellows. And uh, it's a beautiful day here in Elkhart, beautiful day in the state of Indiana. So I appreciate you coming in and, and uh, chatting with me for a little bit. Well, I don't know what you ate for lunch, but today we are serving up a sizzling steak. I feel this series is like a juicy steak. And you can't have it in one bite. I feel this is a multiple episode type series. Um, it just—I'd like to dedicate it first of all to my friend Cameron Caldwell. He, I believe, he lived in Elkhart at one point, and he's also a huge sports fan. He can run circles around me on stats. He quite often insults my uh, lack of sports knowledge. So, thanks for being so hard on me, uh, Mr. Caldwell. Here I am with Curtis Hill, and we're gonna. Just both be uh, a little weak on the stats for a while and strong on the patriotism. We're, but we're going to get right into it here. This, this will kick off the critical race. We are talking about the critical race, not theory. We're talking about reality. What is the critical race? Well, it is not a sprint. No, it's not a sprint towards a personal goal. This is not an outing. This is not a weekend warrior event. This is not a home flip. This is not a weekend guard duty. The critical race is a marathon, and it's a marathon towards national survival. The great Edward Murrow is quoted saying that we must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. And what he means by that is just because somebody disagrees with you on policy or politics does not mean they don't love America. It doesn't mean they hate you or the color of your skin or the party you currently belong to. But yet that does raise the question, what is dissent and what is disloyalty? In this series, we will learn the difference. In fact, we will learn the difference between civil rights and survival. They're not the same thing. They're connected, but they're very different. So this series will be like a juicy steak and we can't eat the whole thing in one swallow, but we will just get into a few things here. Um, so let's just, you know, cover the basics here. Uh, Mr. Hill, when did you take office as Attorney General? Well, I took office in uh, 2017, and I, I, I like the way you opened this, this segment up, Jason, because uh, the critical race that you're speaking of is the human race. And much of what um, the dialogue has been and continues to be is the, the continuing division or divisiveness in the nation based on race, throwing race into the mix on every occasion and, and every opportunity. And it takes away from the fundamental idea of, of one race, a human race, 
And that's really what we need to be striving for. Um, and, and certainly when I began my term in office as attorney general and my history as a uh, former prosecuting attorney, my history as a practicing lawyer, uh, fairness has always been the fundamental uh, ingredient into my professional existence. Fairness across all boards. Uh, not fair to only one group, fair to all groups. And uh, we seem to be... Uh, completely out of balance in how to even approach the issues today. There are clearly issues of race in America. That's not different. That's been the case since America was America. In fact, it was the case before America was America. Uh, We have a sordid, sometimes particularly nasty uh, history in the area of race, and we need to fundamentally understand it. Uh, We need to appreciate it for what it is. We need to take our lumps where they're deserved, and we need to uh, determine ways to rise above it. Uh, right now, we're in a very downward uh, slope, in my estimation, because the conversations are not, uh, they're not the kind of conversations that are going to produce the type of results we need, which is to bringing this country together, bringing these people together, becoming one human race. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat about this, uh, to, to speak openly about it, uh, to uh, uh, put my insight into, uh, into the area, and uh, once again, appreciate your coming to see me. Well, it's uh, it's a beautiful day in Indiana, but you would uh, you wouldn't know that if you were living in Afghanistan right now. While we won't get deep into that topic, um, just think of a think of the human race. We saw the hundreds of these Afghani citizens running alongside this gigantic um, plane, which is a cargo plane. You know, carries people or or large vessels and. If I'm not mistaken, a couple a couple guys managed to finagle up onto the wings, um, the body of the plane, only to fall off to their death, um, unable to hold on at you know 1,200 feet, whatever. It was hard to watch, but you know, that's not conspiracy. That's not theory. That's the human race just wanting a place to be that's safe. And let's be honest, these are Muslim people, much like the Muslims here. They're just guys with jobs and families. They just want a good place. So let's, um, this is not about the Afghan. uh, We can talk talk about that a little bit. I mean, I I, I think what we see happening in Afghanistan is is, uh, unforgivable. Um, What we have done to people that we chose to be our partners, our friends, our neighbors, that we took a responsibility toward 20 years ago, to leave them high and dry and then put the blame on them in the sense that, well, they just don't want to fight for themselves. Um, that's, a bit, uh, that's a bit disingenuous. Uh, these are people, to take a step back for a moment in terms of whether the Afghani people wanted democracy, we can, that's a debate that we can have at any point in time. But we took it upon ourselves to uh, go into Afghanistan, fight terrorism, work with the Afghani government to take the Taliban out. And with that came a a broad responsibility to protect the interests, American interests in that part of the world. And our American interest was to uh, deny a safe haven for terrorism. That was in our interest. Is it a coincidence that the horrors of the Middle Ages followed this period when the Olympics were no more? When sports go away, what comes next absolute 
endless, crushing oppression across Eurasia. Conquerors were stacking bodies faster than teams could stack their rosters. Genghis Khan moved swifter across Asia than Kevin Durant could stride down the hardwood. Every state, every team was a killer, burning people alive, cutting them to pieces, or using naked children as shields for cavalry. Depravity was exceeded only by the hopelessness. From the decline of Rome in 376 to the 16th century, then, almost suddenly, mankind was breathing and stirring again. When men were longing to be free and self-driven, to be self-governed, from the late Middle Ages to the Renaissance to the Enlightenment, the match lit on the third strike. Plato's great republic would burst forth from sea to shining sea in awesome designs and great tribulations. And it was also in our interest to work with the Afghani government. And uh, it's been difficult, but when you think of the number of lives that have been lost, the number of limbs that have been lost, the, 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 the mental anguish that's taken place over the last 20 years, uh, we now have American soldiers and, and uh, others who have lost their lives in vain. Um, and, and when I hear this excuse, well, President Biden didn't anticipate, didn't anticipate this, uh, the quickness of the overrun. Well, that's a failing on him. And that's a failing on us as Americans and in terms of our humanitarian aspects. So it's, it's, a, it's an awful situation it's one that we have to continue to look at. And, and, and one thing I have to say, too, Jason, is when are American leaders going to learn that if you're going to pull out of a conflict situation, you don't necessarily tell everybody the day you're doing it? Um, this idea that, that you have to be politically sensitive to people want to know when you're leaving Afghanistan. Well, leave Afghanistan in a safe way for Americans as well as the Afghani people. You don't tell everybody uh, what your game plan is. Uh, we're going to leave next Wednesday. Well, guess what? Then they're going to wait until Thursday and come at you with everything they've got. So I would hope that we would start picking up some lessons on how we deal with the rest of the world, not only how we get out, but why we go in. And when we go in, we need to have long-term consistent plans that make sense. Um, so I think there's a lot of explaining to do when it comes to Afghani policy um, and this particular withdrawal process. Agreed. Agreed. We, we almost see like a, a mirror image of the 1936 Berlin Olympics. We, you know, we had the world gathered for an Olympic Games, and then almost immediately there, in that case it was three years, we had an invasion of Poland. Uh, while we're all gathered to enjoy the uh, camaraderie of sports and national pride, all, all of a sudden the host country becomes hostile. And while, you know, Japan was, you know, they hosted the Olympics, here we are right out of the Olympics. Except for I would, I would say, I would correct you at one point, I, I would say that the host team, the host nation didn't suddenly become hostile. They were hostile and we denied 
the rationale to look at it. We ignored it, and that's the worst part of it. Uh, historically, you look back, people should have seen Hitler coming the entire way, and what do we do about those types of despots that are taking over and taking power? Yeah. Yeah, that was episode one, Art of Sport. Why did the English trust Hitler? Why did uh, Nivelle Chamberlain clap his hands and go back to England and sing Kumbaya with, with the parliament when nothing changed? Hitler can say whatever he wants, but if you read his book, you know, if you, if you saw, if you just felt the spirit in the air, you knew it wasn't going to go well. And so that'll be a probably a separate episode on the Olympics. But today, we got to get into the civil rights and how it balances with survival, national security, and civil rights. They're very closely connected, but yet they're not fundamentally the same thing. And so let's talk about, let's talk about sports, and let's talk about, let's talk about players, and let's talk about war, and let's talk about heroes. Let's, let's isolate two individuals who happen to have the same last name, and I think that's quite uh, peculiar. I think it's um, almost prophetic that at this time we have a, an exceptional NBA star who just joined with the Lakers. Um, this is for you, Cameron. This is your Russell Westbrook, number zero, went to the L.A. Lakers, uh, 13 years in the league. He's an offensive threat, defensive threat. No player in history ever had more triple doubles in a year than what Russell Westbrook. He, he exceeded all the greats, including Oscar Robinson. And not only in a year, but he has the most, period. So this guy is a producer. Um, you know, early in his career, they kind of pegged him as this solo warrior who didn't think of the greater team. But I think he has, uh, he's come so far at this point, he's earned his stripes and um, so we're going to compare Russell Westbrook to a gentleman named Shelby Westbrook. And would you know, just yesterday was the death anniversary of a World War II veteran named Shelby Westbrook. And he died in 2016. So this is fairly recent. So we have heroes in their own respects, in their own fields. But they're so closely connected. And Trevor Loudon, we got into that. Um, whether it's rugby in the island of New Zealand and their military or the NBA in America and our military, we got to get into it. So Shelby Westbrook, he was an African-American fighter pilot. He was born in Mark Tree, Arkansas, January 15, 1922. At 12 years old, his parents died. That's difficult. But Russell Westbrook... When he was a young player going to UCLA, his best friend died. His best friend died. I think that's just a really interesting similarity. Um, his name was Kelsey Bars, and uh, they were going to go to UCLA and play together. You know, they're going to be wingmen, so to speak. Um, you know, some people go to the military with their friends, or they make friends there. His wingman died before he got to go to battle. That's hard. I guess it was a pickup game. Um, the young man's heart enlarged, and he passed away. So both Westbrooks, high flyers, sharpshooters, they both represent uh, the topic at hand, and it's survival 
and civil rights and just where we're at. So um, I'm 39. I, I'm not going to. I'm a little older. Yeah, so we may have different <laughs> different heroes, uh, you know, in our minds. What would you? What's what's some of your uh, best sports memories, Curtis? Well, you're you're uh, you know, there's several in that sense. Um, uh, certainly, I have memories. I have memories of memories. There's there's things that occurred before I was born. Um, the memory of Jesse Owens, for example, in the Berlin Olympics, um, and and the feat of of how powerful his his performance was and his character uh, in the sense of going on uh, to German soil and taking on uh, fascism, but still taking on racism here in America and the hypocrisy that goes along with that representation. Um, but when you think about the quality of his athleticism, uh, if you just want to look at it from a pure athletic standpoint, Jesse Owens didn't just start at, this, at the starting line and finish first. Every day he started way behind the line and still finished first. And that is indicative of, of the, of the uh, African-American spirit in this nation. Uh, from a history of being oppressed, a history of being downtrodden, a history of being abused, and yet uh, a history of perseverance, endurance, uh, winning the race, and winning it by a mile. And so there's... There's a, a strength and a fortitude that is in the marrow of black Americans that, uh, uh, that have taught them how to survive and how to thrive. And, and so you, you pick that up from, from Jesse, Jack, or Jesse, well, Jesse Owens' era. Um, you go forward and you see the, the historical strain on athletics and civil rights. Uh, you know, we fight World War II. Um, uh, the armies uh, are desegregated by by Harry Truman. You know, it's it's shocking to think about that when you. you know, it took us uh, into the fifties before we before we desegregated uh, uh, the military. Um, you move forward. You've got Jackie Robinson going into baseball, uh, and all of the uh, problems affiliated with uh, his entry into the game, and the racism that he exhibited that he uh, uh, felt. On a, on a regular basis. And, and these are people who were heroes, not only to young black children, but heroes to young white children because they demonstrated the perseverance that's necessary to make it in America. Um, I moved forward into when I was a youngster, and uh, I remember Muhammad Ali, who in the beginning of his career as Cassius Clay was really criticized as being brash, and, and uh, uh, a lot of people didn't like Clay, a lot of people hated Ali and all he stood for. And yet when we look back today at Muhammad Ali and the strength of his conviction and not just, I mean, you have to look at him in a couple of different ways. First of all, as an athlete, uh, he probably could have played almost any sport and excelled because he had not just control over his body, but he had control over his mind. He knew how to excel and get the most out of his physicality. But that mind also... Uh, wouldn't be trained by others. He was able to think for himself, uh, believe in himself, and believe in his cause. And that gave uh, an abundance of youngsters uh, someone to look up to, uh, to, to emulate in that sense. And, and so Ali was a great, regardless of whether you were a fan of his or not, he represents a, uh, uh, a 
a, a very positive role model in terms of uh, someone who is competent, someone who is uh, 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 knows how to move forward and get the most out of his own existence. Um, and then you move now. Now, for me, sports heroes sort of start to wane uh, right when we start getting into free agency and and moving away from the old era where you started with a baseball team and you stayed your entire career with that team. Um, I remember when the uh, uh, we had the baseball strike in the, what was that, the 90s? Um, and that pretty much did it for me. I was hoping that they'd call up the minor leaguers and be done with it because from my standpoint, it was difficult for me to see, to really get behind a group of grown men who were playing a kid's game and, and having a strike. Now, it's much more complex than that, of course. But nevertheless, um, we see that today. Uh, when we see millionaires in football uh, taking a knee for protest, and you have to ask yourself the question, do they really get what they're protesting? Um, and, and I think that's a fair question when we start turning sport into protest. Um, it, it subjects you to those types of questions and what are you there for? Um, and we see that often. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? Are we so surprised that by 1776, free agency became a thing when mankind declared independence from British owners and foul trade deals, that by June 19th of 1846, the first official baseball game was played, that when, by 1865, the great Greek Republic had expelled the practice of slavery from its shores, and when, on that glorious April day in 1876, the first Major League game commenced in Athletic Park, Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. Presume this mere happenstance that the games began in the same city that our institutions of freedom were birthed shortly after the establishment of our sacred pastime in baseball. The Olympic gods were growing jealous in the heavens above stirring and beckoning to us from their ethereal luxury suites. From 391 to 1895, the Olympics experienced their own dark ages. Is it not perfect timing that by 1896, the long-forgotten great Olympic Games were resurrected rising from the ashes of the longest period of human suffering? But we sign our kids up as if America will continue indefinitely, unconditionally. We play ball like there is no crack in our Liberty Bell. So I, I think, um, I certainly think there are correlations between uh, sports heroes and uh, what I would say, uh, regular life heroes uh, in terms of what it takes to build oneself up, what it takes to get in the game, what it takes to win the game, what it takes to be uh, on defense when defense is necessary, and how to take the game to the opponent when necessary. Agreed. 
I was just thinking about Ali driving in here today. Um, got a haircut at Big League, and of course they had a big poster of Ali over his Sonny Liston victory. Mm. Who doesn't like that picture, right? That's just the baddest man mm. on earth in that moment. Um, and of course, I also thought about the time when he boxed um, a player from your era um, who was an NFL star linebacker by the name of Lyle Zado. Mm. Now, I got to meet a friend of his at a party in Huntington, Indiana. What are the chances? But Lyle Zado was just a juggernaut with real no care for for human life this man in any other era he would have been a gladiator or he would have been a templar i mean just ripped people to shreds and he was proud of it but you know it probably stemmed back to some childhood hurts of course and he did a boxing charity with muhammad ali and i would think i think muhammad ali probably went uh easy on him probably could have taken him down rather quick but yeah, he let the the giant, you know, put on the show, and so Ali, he is, he deserves an entire series of his own. Um, well, one of the best, one of the greatest moments in sport history was the Olympics when uh, Ali was the last person to get the torch uh, at the top of the uh, of the uh, stadium. Um, was that uh, Los Angeles? I think that was the. Uh, um, Trying to think if that was the Los Angeles Olympics, I get them running through. But he was when he lit that torch, and stood there with his wavering hand, and and wavering body, and just the, the flood of emotion that went through that stadium and went through every person who saw that event. Mm. It that that it, it and and this would have included people who were not Ali fans because at a point Ali transcended any particular viewpoint about him. Uh, he became that special and that important of not only a sports uh, hero, but a humanitarian hero. Agreed. Was that in his later years when he was suffering from the post? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that was, I do recall that. That was very emotional. Almost on par, if not on par, with the uh, Jesse Owens lap around the Grand Stadium, the Olympic Stadium, with his rival right under Hitler's nose. The, um, and that really gets into it. You know, Russell Westbrook is a warrior in a different era than was Muhammad Ali, than was Shelby Westbrook. You see, sports and education and government, they've all suffered segregation and racism. But in different eras, we have to look at it so differently. We, we can't look at it like a, a millennial who watches Russell Westbrook um, we have to look at the big picture. So Shelby, he is a fighter pilot, black American fighter pilot in the Tuskegee Airmen. And this was a World War II um, company. And it wasn't really popular to be black in the 40s. Uh, well. Or 50s or 60s. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of, it's it's never popular to be 13% of uh, humanity and I like to use that number 13, you know, referring to the 13 colonies. You know, they were a minority of thought in the globe when monarchy was the, the thing. And here's 13 colonies that have this different idea, and they're just getting brutalized by the Brits, who are supposed to be these civilized people. But different episode, right? I love Shelby Westbrook. I just finished up a documentary. This guy, he's got this look on his face, kind of like, Russell Westbrook, after he hits a jumper in your face, 
You know, it's like you're coming down the court in the fourth quarter. You need like eight points to tie it. You give Russell the ball. He crosses you over, crosses another guy over, spins, hits the J, and then he backpedals with this smug look on his face. Like with that stiff upper lip, you know, that. And I respect, I like that. Every, You know, it's the same look Ali had, you know, when he looked at Liston. It's the same look Alzado had when he just knocked a QB over on his butt and he, and he rolled over backwards. But if anyone deserves the, that countenance, it's Shelby. This is a guy who, you know, he was fighting a dictator in a time of racial divide, segregation. Um, you couldn't go to the same school, eat at the same restaurants. This man couldn't go to the same officer's club. They made it illegal to play pool, smoke cigarettes, and drink beer with the white officers on base. Think of that. It's one thing to say, well, you can't, you can't do this on the court. You don't got the skills. And then you show up and show off. Then you, you just can't do it, period. We're not even going to let you try. Get out of here or you're going to get arrested. And so that's a different era. Shelby, Shelby went through things, you know, Russell couldn't imagine you know, that uh, mean mug. You know, if anyone deserves a mean mug, it's Shelby, right? Well, sport uh, sport is a continuation of the competitiveness of life. Um, when, you, when you talk about wars, what are wars fought for? Wars are fought because of a dispute. And you build up your armies and you build up your strength and you, uh, you invade and attack and you defend. And sport is very much like that. It, it replaces that instinct that we have to compete, to thrive, to succeed, to outman. And if only we could get to a point where we solved our disputes in the sports arena, which I think was the original intent of the Olympiads, uh, Olympics in the first place, is to, is to bring countries together and through uh, the, the engagement of sport, come to a better understanding and, and of our existence and how we stage together. 